Welcome to the Gold Digger podcast series, a series that investigates the mysterious decline of Australian Rugby Union. It's a fan's journey into the void to pick up the pieces of Australian Rugby Union and find a path forward to a fortune and glory. I'm your host and humble rugby servant, Matt Durrant. And here we are, episode 10, double digits. Uh, I do apologise, there are some delays between episodes and uh, I probably set the pace a little too quick last year with pumping these out once a week. Uh, You would have thought during lockdown I've got nothing better to do than to sit here and uh, ramble, but life does get in the way. However, uh, I have some plans ahead to interview some more people, so we're going to get more interviews and we're going to keep touching on the analysis of the game, uh, examining it. And hopefully getting as many experts as, as I can on so we can mull over uh, these various pers- perspectives. So great responses to the last episode with Barry Honan. And I appreciate anyone that, that messaged me or commented on the Facebook site. Interestingly, the rules for this year's Super Rugby AU and Aotearoa competitions have come out in, in terms of the, the law amendments. A lot of it is continuing on from last year in terms of trying to speed up the way uh, the rucks are interpreted by the referees, but also the 50-20 rules and um, some adjustments to extra time where there's now going to be a golden try instead of just a golden point. But I think what Barry was suggesting and perhaps what we'll find out later on in the year if we talk to him again um, are some more substantial changes to laws and law amendments that they're looking to try and evolve. So today's episode is going to focus on our elite teams in Australia. And I've asked myself the question a number of times in recent years, do we have enough talent in Australian rugby to be successful? Now, you only need to look at the Wallaby performance in the last 10 years and see that it's been on a downward trajectory, almost pretty consistently. And of course, Our Super Rugby teams, since the Waratahs last win in 2014, we haven't really had much success in the old Super Rugby competition. And of course, there was that two-year period where we had a a losing streak against all the New Zealand teams. Now, there's going to be a number of factors for that, and I don't want this to be a player bashing session. But it does beg the question, do we have the right type of players? Are Are we developing the sorts of players that can make successful professional rugby teams. If you look at the statistics of players in the last 40 years, it's pretty obvious that all the Wallaby players with the best win percentage, personally, are all from that golden era of late 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. In fact, the top 13 Wallabies, by their personal win percentage, The top 13 all retired before 2007. Uh, The top player out of interest is Tim Horan, who won 84% of the 80 games that he played. Second to him is John Eels, who won 77% of all his 86 games. So, you know, these are all pretty obvious statistics, and I don't think you have to be um, a master statistician to go and look at this. But it does just beg the question is, what has changed in the last 15 years Why are players who are seemingly world-class, when you look at David Pocock, who was just named in the last decade's World Rugby Team of the Year, and of course Wallabies who have gone on to play in Europe and 
Some of them have won awards or been part of successful teams. So it does beg the question is, what has happened in Australia? I want to go back to some of the interviews I had during the documentary, and many of these people we've already heard from before in previous episodes, and we've got a couple of of new people who I'll introduce later. But I wanted to examine the pathways that some of these players had to travel to get to the highest level in Australia. We've previously heard from former Wallaby Michael Liner about how he went from being a junior in Queensland all the way up to becoming a Wallaby. When we were on the Gold Coast, the school I went to there played rugby league. Um, I played soccer as well. Um, and then in 1974, the family relocated back up to Brisbane. And the school I went to, Gregory Terrace, um, happened to play rugby in the, in the winter. And so that's what I did in the winter. I started trying to learn how to play the game um, when I was about, oh gosh, how old would I have been? About 11 or so. And um, that's what was my first sort of introduction to rugby. I wasn't necessarily very good at it. Um, I didn't really understand all the rules, etc., as opposed to, say, rugby league, um, which I'd played before. Um, um, cricket was my main sport at school, um, all the way through school. Um, and once I got into the senior school um, at Terrace, it was, which was age 13, um, I, there was an influx of students there and I ended up being sort of in and out the B team, rugby B team, under 14s B team. Played a few games in the A's, etc. But then at 15, I, I went into the first 15 um, and played three years in the first 15. And that's where it all sort of took off, I guess, um, from that. Out of school, first summer out of school, I was picked for the Australian Schoolboys Tour to the UK and Ireland over here. In the background of all that was cricket. I played four years in first 11 cricket, and that was, I wanted to be a cricketer. Um, but my first summer out of school was spent playing rugby over here in the, in the UK. So <laughs> I came back from that tour um, and was picked in the, I played a couple of games for university A grade rugby team. And out of that, I uh, got picked for the Queensland team. Uh, senior rugby team and that was it. I didn't play cricket again. Michael's journey seems to be a common one. He was identified as a promising schoolboy and then just funneled through the representative system. However, you know, not, not everyone was scouted at schoolboy level. And in fact, one of the players I just mentioned earlier, who had the second most successful record as a Wallaby and has been our most successful captain during the golden era, John Eels, was a bit of a late bloomer. The typical pathway was, it was fairly set and fairly traditional in that you played schoolboy rugby, then you went and played club rugby, and uh, that had the different representations at different levels, schoolboys, Queensland schoolboys, Australian schoolboys, I didn't make either of those, but then, then they had the Queensland 19s, uh, didn't have Australian 19s at that stage, Queensland 21s, Australian 21s, Queensland wallabies, and some people would skip a couple of those levels, some people would uh, go through each one of them. Um, and I, I skipped a lot of the junior ones, always tried to get into the teams, never got picked, and then then started to uh, have a bit more success after Colts Rugby at Brothers. Our finest Wallaby captain didn't even make a junior representative side. But perhaps it was just an isolated case. One thing is for sure that certainly back in the amateur era, those who didn't get scouted as a junior to play for their state could still stand up and make a name for themselves in what was arguably two of the most competitive amateur rugby competitions in the world. The Shoot Shield competition in Sydney and Brisbane's Queensland Premier Rugby competition. This is Peter Fitzsimons 
former Wallaby who played with two Shoot Shield clubs around that time, Sydney University and Manly. Look, when I played, it's funny, I was built up to be the Wallabies, which it still is, but I remember having a realisation early. You really had to be, there was only two cities, essentially, that produced Wallabies, which was Sydney and Brisbane. Uh, back then and you know up until the late 80s early 90s and there were two big club competitions so you had to emerge to be one of the best club players in Sydney or in Brisbane make the New South Wales or the Queensland side there was a sometimes you'd get people from ACT but very rarely and so if you if you proved yourself as one of the best of Sydney club rugby you were already halfway home to playing for the Wallabies. As of 2021 the club that has produced the most Wallabies in Australia is Sydney University, with 103. I'd actually gotten back in touch with Wallaby historian Matthew Alvarez, who you would have heard back in episode 8. Matthew provided me with the details for the clubs who have produced the Wallabies, but he did specify that these are the clubs that the players were at at the time that they made their debut. And that means that guys like Kurtley Beale and David Campisi while having played for the Randwick Rugby Club, were actually at other clubs when they had their Wallaby debut. Bill was at Northern Suburbs, and Campisi was at the Queen Bean Whites in the ACT. So it does make you wonder a little bit when you hear about this claim of clubs producing the most amount of Wallabies. Did those clubs actually produce that talent? Or was it done elsewhere? Or at school? Anyway, I digress. As I said, 103 is what Sydney University have produced, Randwick have had 72 Wallabies. The Brothers Club, which we heard earlier mentioned by John Eels, has produced 52. And then East and Sydney and the University of Queensland are at four and five. Bit of a drop-off. But Sydney University has effectively produced around 11% of all Wallabies across history. In fact, those five clubs I've just mentioned account for approximately a third of all Wallabies. Now let's go down further and look at the schoolboy level. There are a number of schools in New South Wales and Queensland that are synonymous with producing rugby talent. Again, courtesy of Matthew Alvarez, I was able to get the figures on these schools. St Joseph's College, which is very well known, Joey's, has had the most amount of Wallabies with 45. But again, it's apt to point out that some of these players who attended Joey's also attended another school, which makes you wonder who should actually get the credit. The rest of the schools is a, a list that is long and distinguished. Gregory Terrace, Newington College, Sydney Grammar School, Brisbane Grammar School, the King's School, goes on. And like with all the clubs, the top 21 schools on this list account for about a third of all Wallabies. Now, top of the list is St Joseph's College, which has been widely considered the most prolific nursery for rugby talent in Australia for some time. Tony Daly, Matt Burke, Bill Young... Luke Burgess. In more recent years, it's produced Wallabies such as Kirtley Beale, Tom Robertson, and two guys who played in 2020 in Ned Hannigan and a debutante, Tom Wright. I spoke to an alumni of St. Joseph's College. This person wasn't a Wallaby. He actually happens to be the founder and CEO of the Australian rugby fan website, Green and Gold Rugby. This is Matt Rowley, who we heard from in episode six. So I think like a lot of rugby fans, I guess I was born into it. So I went to the same school as my dad and actually where my son goes now, which is St. Joseph's College um, in Sydney. And it's just a rugby mad school, always has been. 
I think we've produced more wallabies than any other school in Australia and I was a long way anywhere close from being to that mark but you know mediocre but really really keen so that kind of got me into rugby and it kind of once it's bitten you like that it doesn't let go. So on, on the point of it producing the most wallabies ever anyone ever put forward a theory as to why that is? Uh, why did Joey's pr- produce so many wallabies? I guess it's just in the ethos of the school but I think also because it was always uh, like a 100% boarding school and I think rugby was probably a quite a good way to kind of control a lot of that testosterone and energy and it just got funneled into that and then it just got a roll on it's probably there's probably a little bit like that whole sort of all blacks aura and mania that you see in New Zealand it's that idea of you know carrying forward sort of that legacy and no one wants to let it go and so I think it kind of creates a culture and a pressure um, that kind of keeps the school on its toes. And presumably they're they're playing in one of the most competitive schoolboy environments in the country so I guess that's sort of, is going to help them, you yeah. know, encourage more people to come and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, I think it really becomes a part of the identity of the school. If anything, I think the schools look to evolve over the years and be less sort of just footy and sort of meatheads, um, so to speak. But yeah, definitely, I think you see the success and then that kind of breeds success and people want to follow it. And, and now you've got the sons and you know, grandsons of people who've done well. And so it really has become something that's part of the water. In fact, one of the people who was drawn to St. Joseph's because of the success they had was not a future Wallaby, but a future England international, Michael Lippmann. This is Michael talking about why he ended up going to Joey's back in episode three when I interviewed him. My older brother, my twin brother and I, um, went to a Joey's review game and we were undecided on which school we should go to. My dad was like, well... um, you know, which, which, whichever one you want. And my older brother said, oh, whoever wins this game, um, we'll just go to that school. And, you know, Joey's, that was back in 1989 where they were just flying and they just hadn't lost a premiership for, you know, I think about five years. And Joey's won at Riverview by about 50 points and that was, the, that was it. So we just said, all right, that's where we're going. Um, we didn't even know that it was a rugby school. We just were only... 10, 11 years old, so we just said, oh, we'll go there. And yeah, it was probably one of the best decisions that's been made on my behalf, yeah. Now, when it came to talking to Wallabies from the more recent era, I was fortunate to talk to a couple of people who had recently retired after they'd just had long and satisfying rugby careers. One person who I reached out to on Twitter was former Wallaby Ben Alexander. We exchanged numbers. I then spoke to him on the phone, had a good chat, told him about the documentary, and we were able to arrange an interview in Canberra. By this stage, COVID was running rampant around the world, so we conducted an interview between London and Canberra, where Ben lives, and runs a pub, amongst other enterprises. Yeah, I am Beecroft Junior, so I started playing uh, not till about under 12s, so um, some family friends of ours, the Luxfords, uh, they were diehard rugby fans, and they managed to convince my dad and my mum to let me and my three brothers, my two brothers, sorry, play, play rugby back in... I know, yeah, I must have been year six at primary school. So we'd been living in, in the US and I was a huge sports fan. I you know, played you know, uh, in the school ground, played gridiron and I played basketball, baseball. So I was sports mad as a kid. But um, yeah, when we came back from the US, I mean, I didn't know the difference between league or union and this was sort of the mid-90s. Yeah, some family friends took us to a, to a Wallabies test match against South Africa at the SFS and 
So, you know, David Campisi and, um, you know, I can't remember if they, pretty sure the Wallabies won that match. But, yeah, some family friends got us into it. And then uh, that was my most successful season, I think, was my under-12s Beecroft. We were undefeated and won the, I don't think we had a try scored against us. And that was about my only premiership, I think, was my first lot of near, lot of near wins. But, that um, yeah, that first season, still got a lot of good, really good friends from that, like, Beecroft under twelve side. But then from there, I went to Knox, uh, which is a rug big rugby playing school and played school and um, club for Beecroft and a bit of district stuff for Eastwood all through, all through school. And then I never had any ambitions or like uh, to be a professional. I just sort of kept playing every Saturday because I loved the game. Like I had just so many good friends uh, and it was just so ingrained in me that every Saturday you just go out and play rugby. So when I graduated school and moved to Canberra to start a, a sports journalism degree here at University of Canberra, sort of asked my uncle that was living down here at the time, I said, well, who, who am I going to sign up for? What club? And ended up, yeah, signing up with the Uni Norths. And, uh, you know, we had a great season there with the, Col the Colts in, I think it was about 2003. And from there got in the Brumbies Academy and so the rest is history. Nearly got tossed out of the academy once for being a piss wreck after one of my seasons um, but um, yeah all sort of just evolved you know I never thought I'd play professionally or play for the Brumbies or the Wallabies like, so I never thought I was good enough you know I just kept playing every Saturday because it was just loved the game and it was just um, you know habit Saturday was was footy and yeah just just kept playing and just sort of fell into this career just yeah it all sort of happened pretty quickly. Ben had come through playing for Knox Grammar in Sydney a school that has produced 11 Wallabies the most recent being in 2020, Lockie Swinton. These private schools continue to be the backbone of the factory that produces our country's top players. In both New South Wales and Queensland, there are the Great Public Schools Associations, or GPS, that have long-standing competitions between the more prominent rugby-playing schools. There are a host of other competitions, the Ballymore Cup in Queensland, combined high schools in New South Wales. Some of them overlap, but overall many of these school competitions run separate to each other. Now the Australian schoolboys team would traditionally be selected at carnivals where each state would pick a side. And historically, the Australian schoolboys were truly representative of people playing rugby at a wide range of both private and public schools. This is longtime sports broadcaster and the voice of rugby, Gordon Bray. If you look at the development pathways in Australian rugby um, today, it's, it's basically a game played in the private schools, you know, right around the country. But if you go back to the first Australian schools team in 1969, probably two thirds of that side came from the state school system. So that's an area that has been on the wane uh, since that first schoolboys team, you know, 50 years ago, and that is a concern. So. Basically, our, our nursery is coming from the private schools and all of those state schools and, and the talent there, and particularly in the country areas, I think has been neglected. If you want to be an elite rugby player, professional rugby player, you have to come to the cities. But uh, a lot of country kids don't have that opportunity. And if you look at the past, uh, when Australian rugby has been strong, but going back into golden eras, say in the 60s, there were a lot of country players, but I think a lot of those players have slipped through the net. So that's an area that has to be addressed. That list I spoke about before of 21 schools that make up roughly a third of all Wallabies, only three of them are state schools. Now, this trend is something I discussed during my interview with Wallaby historian Matthew Alvarez. 
it's been a sad, um, sad, something sad to watch, really, because the contribution they made in those early years, and then, of course, quite a few of them went on to become Wallabies, has changed dramatically. Um, you only got to look at the last last years or two, year or two. There have only been a handful who have come from non-GPS schools, but those who then go on to become Wallabies, as I say in the professional era, only forty percent have come from GPS schools. So that path pathway, whilst great to the schoolboy level, hasn't necessarily given them that next step, or they haven't taken that next step. And in fact, it's fascinating to go back and have a look at the age representation teams under 20s and even the schoolboys, just to see how many names um, didn't go on to do anything. And it, uh, I'd really like to investigate if and when I get to the point of being up to date as I can with the Australian stuff, is to go back and find some of these guys and try and understand what stopped you from going on. Was it injury? Was it career? Was it ambition to do something else? Was it another sport? Did you just fall out of love with it? But yeah, it's you go back and have a look at some of those um, sides and you can find them at the Australian schools, uh, rugby schools uh, website. And yeah, there's there's a quite a number of players who just didn't go on in the game. And that is a valid question to ask. Why didn't they go on with the game? Have people just fallen out of love with rugby? Do they grow out of it after they leave school? And if so, how is that impacting our ability to grow the game in schools and clubs? Sports like rugby depend on positions like development officers, whose role it is to go out into the community and help grow the game. I think here in New South Wales, maybe we've got 10 or 12 development officers, perhaps one covering the whole of Western Sydney. But you know, who is going out into those country areas? Uh, the, the people who are doing it are doing a fantastic job, but they are, they're overworked, they're undersourced, they're underpaid, and uh, it's, it's, it's an impossible task, quite frankly. The job that one person is doing should really be covered by four or five development officers. And that's the only way Australian rugby can, can make sure that we are getting to all of that talent outside the metropolitan areas and uh, making sure they're being trained and, and skilled up. And even in primary school level, I think that's very important, introducing the game at a young age so that these youngsters can, can get involved in what's happening at a more senior elite level in terms of following the sport because that's where it all starts. That's where it all started for me as a school kid, uh, following my idols. And uh, the game needs idols, but they've got to be out there in, in front of the kids. And at the moment, that doesn't really happen with rugby. If you asked a junior uh, in, in, in Western Sydney, can you name uh, you know, three players in the Waratah side? Um, I, I guarantee they, could, they would struggle to name three. They'd probably have Kirtley Beale and Michael Hooper and some would probably throw in Israel Folau, but that would be about it. And I think that's a sad indictment when you consider that rugby league in particular in, in New South Wales um, and to a lesser extent Australian rules, those young kids could, could name three times as many players in the, in the New South Wales State of Origin team. I should point out this interview with Gordon occurred roughly one year ago when Michael Hooper and Kirtley Bill were still lining up for the Waratahs. And of course, Israel Folau, well, I'm assuming most people know that tale. And on his point about there being 10 to 12 development officers, well, 
again, after COVID hit, one of the victims of the staff cuts made by Rugby Australia was development officers. Gordon talked about the lack of exposure at primary schools. It's something Peter Foot-Simons also picked up on. The great success of Aussie rules is over the years, over the decades, they've played the long game and they continue to pour resources into the lower level of the pyramid. Where you and I are talking in Neutral Bay, 500 yards that away is Neutral Bay public. 15 years ago, I was up there with my kids on a particular morning. It was a sports assembly. Boys and girls, I want you to welcome five players of the Sydney Swans. And there they were. And they were just doing this sort of session with them. How many of you play Aussie rules? Half the, half the class put their hand up. Half of them were girls. Now, those boys and those girls from 15 years ago that were visited by the Sydney Swans probably are attending the SCG six miles to our south. And they, they put all their resources into popularising the game, providing footballs, players, boots, to get to the kids, to get to the mums and dads, and they've done it. And the Wallabies... The, the, the problem has been so much of the resources has gone into simply the professional end of the game that there's been very little left over for development officers, for boots, for balls, for, for fields, for, for encouraging it at the lowest level. It used to just be assumed that the schools would do it and the schools used to do it. That away, about five, four miles from here, is, is the Shore School. And the Shore School used to be, which is on the lower north shore of Sydney, used to be one of the great nurseries of Australian rugby that would produce the likes of Michael Hawker. Somebody told me the other day that in the final year at Shore, there are now 19 sports captains, which is to say, instead of the first 15 captain and the cricket captain and maybe a symbolic token soccer captain, which I imagine it was 30 years ago, and perhaps a basketball captain for... They've now got 19 captains, so it's, it's fractured, it's diffused, it's, which is a good thing for diversity of sport, but it's not a good thing for rugby still being the huge deal that it was in those schools. We'll get to the impact of AFL and rugby league in a moment, but I want to go back and address how our junior development pathways have actually evolved. Players no longer have to impress at one junior carnival or make first grade at a select number of Sydney or Brisbane clubs. Rugby Australia have started for some years now to create an aligned pathway so that kids as young as 15 can be identified and provided an opportunity to prove themselves over a longer period. The Australian schoolboys team are now the Australian schools and under-18s team, which allows for players at clubs to be included. Each super rugby team have academies that enable teenagers to train and play in academy-based tournaments, even in the non-traditional heartlands like the ACT, Victoria and Western Australia. These academies provide opportunities for players to prove themselves in competitions like the Super Under-20s Championship, which was launched in 2016. It runs alongside the existing Under-19s Rugby Championship, which is run by Rugby Australia, from which the Junior Wallabies get selected. So now more than ever, players can be put into a pathway funnel, forging a clear way for them to become professional rugby players. And amongst all that, the local club competition remains as tribal as ever. I mentioned Rambic Rugby Club earlier and the fact that it's the club that has the second highest number of Wallabies that has come through it. But not only that, in the last 40 years, it has also produced three Wallaby coaches in Bob Dwyer, Ewan McKenzie 
and Michael Checker. So I think growing up in Coogee and Maroubra, I was always blessed to have a really good life. And I think um, the big thing around rugby and what it's meant to me is I went to a school called Waverley College. And if you go to Waverley College back then, and they probably wouldn't like me saying this, if they knew I was playing rugby league on a Sunday, you'd be expelled. This is former Wallaby Adam Fryer. He met me for an interview for the documentary down at Coogee Oval on a lovely sunny day in the middle of 2020. Well, when I say met, he met my cameraman and me on a smartphone as I did a Zoom call from London. Adam really does represent that textbook Wallaby journey. He's the son of a famous footballer in rugby league father, Laurie Fryer. He went to Waverley College, who have multiple Wallabies in their alumni, most notably players like Morgan Tuirunui, Stephen Hoyles, and one of the stalwarts of Australia rugby's golden era, Owen Finnegan. Adam was an Australian schoolboy. He was captain of the Australian under-21s, and then he had a very long super rugby career playing chiefly for the New South Wales Waratahs, although he bookended his professional career with short stints at the Brumbies and Rebels. And all the while, he's been a galloping green, a Randwick rugby man all his life. In fact, at the age of 40, Adam had only just had his last game in 2020 playing for Randwick when I spoke to him. You know, I made the choice to play rugby and I only fell into it by accident. I'd love to be able to tell you that I've always wanted to be a Wallaby and, you know, I've been down at Coogee Oval as a young kid, but it really came when I was 10 years old and um, the under-10s coach asked anyone who would like to play hooker. I was a dummy half in rugby league for the Coogee Wombats and I thought hooker in league and union were the same thing. And you would know that they're two very different positions. And I was a really small kid, put my hand up for the 10 A's. And what was that 30 years ago? Uh, now I see myself a week out of giving the game up. So it's an incredible journey. Like, and I think that's the part of it is it's, it's never been about the destination. It's been about the journey. Uh, and it's just interesting how it all panned out. And to land where I am now and to have finished a footy career at you know, 200 games for Randwick and 100 Super Games, all those sort of numbers that don't really matter. It's where you land. Uh, and you know, I, put my, I put the journey as being the most fascinating one of, of all, but you know, not about caps and not about clubs and not about teams. I was interested in Adam's view on clubs and how influential they are in shaping the game in Australia, especially given that at some point in time, just about anyone who has played for the Wallabies belonged to a club. I know a lot of the people you've interviewed on this show, people I, I've got a very high opinion on. Um, and you look at, you look at some of the, the thought around a successful performing Wallaby team, it, it absolutely is quintessential to a thriving sport. So this is where you can talk about connection, right? So you've got a philosophy of mine that's very much around grassroots community and village and how important that is and everyone that's down at this ground supporting the team is fundamentally crucial to it. But then on top of that, you've got an ecosystem where none of this works without commercial dollars and revenue. And if the Wallabies aren't winning, it just makes us so much more difficult to get that commercial revenue. Now look, the Wallabies for mine, if the Wallabies were winning week in, week out, and they were the All Blacks and you know, beating teams easily, then I don't know if that's going to fix footy. It'll certainly help, because kids need heroes, and it needs to plug into broadcast rights, sponsorship, which eventually will trickle down back into the villages. But you can't put everything back on the performance of the Wallabies or rugby not being free to wear. You can't put everything back on that. 
Now, if I had to go to the rugby gods and ask for one thing that could fix rugby, I, I can tell you now, the one thing I would ask for is a, a Wallaby side that's continually putting in performance this country is proud of, which ultimately would lead to winning. Um, it, it, it's absolutely quintessential, but we need to ensure that that Wallaby team is connected into the village. So if there's a kid from Ramwick, he's badged with a Ramwick sticker, he'll go off and play for his country, and then you know, the magic will be you know, that kid. And you look at it, you see little kids, um, not little kids, but you see players, say, from Fiji, their whole village is around the TV watching you know, their, their, their son or their player or their little kid that's playing in the village going and playing in Fiji. That, that's no different in rugby. So it's fair that the strength of a sport relies on good foundations. And despite the pressures of poor performances by the Wallabies and the Super Rugby teams and the rise of other football codes, there are still nurseries of talent in our schools and rugby villages all around the country. But do we have enough participation? Now, according to World Rugby's latest reporting, Australia is currently fifth in the world for participation with, and they have a very specific number, 477 thousand and thirty one players. In terms of this list, England has the highest, followed by the USA, South Africa, and then France. However, yeah, there is some speculation that these participation numbers are somewhat inflated. Uh, in Australia there's claims that coaching clinics and sevens tournaments that are run at schools are often counted. So, you know, it's also not clear whether every country is reporting to World Rugby according to the same standard. So I should put that caveat out there. And in fact, it's also important to realise that the latest figures from World Rugby's 2019 annual statement that were published in the middle of 2020 are also the same figures that were published in their 2019 annual statement. So did these numbers just get duplicated or was there no reporting done? It's not quite clear. But anyway, it gives us a gauge on which countries have the most amount of players. And in fact, if player participation is one thing, probably what paints a better picture of a country's rugby playing system is the number of registered players. That means players who are registered with a club or a school. You know, people who take part in a season on a regular basis. Now here, Australia has the third largest amount of player registration numbers, with 271,922 players. Only South Africa and England have more. Now we can play around with the statistics a number of ways, and I'm conscious that this is an audio experience, so I don't want to drown you in numbers. But if we just quickly look at the number of registered players we have per capita, we have around on current estimates for population one registered rugby player for every 100 people in Australia. Comparatively, New Zealand have three for every 100. Fiji, believe it or not, have 14 for every 100. So 14% of Fiji's population is registered to play rugby. And this makes sense when you consider that Australia has rival football codes that capture a lot of that talent that would otherwise go to rugby. New Zealand doesn't have that problem. So where am I going with all these numbers? Well, sure, we can have more people at our base and more kids participating. But comparatively speaking, with other rugby nations, we aren't doing too badly. In fact, if the figures World Rugby put out are accurate, since 2007, Australia's total players has been steadily growing, albeit a couple of years where we slipped back by about 10,000 in 2016. So with more than enough players to choose from, what is the problem? Are the numbers misleading? Out of this player pool, are enough of them talented to produce a successful Wallaby team? This is John Eels. 
I think we do have enough talent, but the, the, the player drain, the brain drain, is you, you cannot underestimate how, how damaging that has been. When I came through and towards the end of my career, people would go towards the end of their career. So, some would go earlier, but generally the trend was you give it every shot to represent Australia. That was the primacy was given to the Wallabies in everyone's minds. That, that's the team they wanted to be a part of. And as time went on, if they, if they couldn't be a part of that, then they might move. Or if they've played a lot of years for that, then they might move on. Now players are leaving at a very early age. And you understand why. You can't complain about that because when rugby became professional, the, the genie was out of the bottle, so to speak. And uh, rugby, I, I think, compared to... And it's what a lot of people don't recognise, that if you're the best rugby league player in the world, uh, you're, you're getting, probably getting paid the most to play in the best rugby league competition in the world in Australia. If you're the best Aussie rules player in the world, you're getting paid the most to play in the best Aussie rules competition in the world, which is in Australia. If you're the best rugby player in the world, then you can be getting paid three times as much to go to Japan than what you're getting paid here, or to go to, to France or England. You can be getting paid significantly more. So, you know, it was a great example when Sonny Bill Williams was, was in the All Blacks. They, they won the World Cup, he had just won the, couple of super rugby series with um, with the Chiefs. Uh, then he went and had a couple of seasons in Japan, were pro was probably playing half as many games and getting paid, paid significantly more than what he was getting paid playing for the best team in the world, being one of the significant players for the best team in the world. So you've got that that dynamic, which I think a lot of people don't recognise. So keeping our talent is is not easy. Uh, from that respect and it does it does hurt the wallabies because you don't have same groups of people developing great combinations playing provincial rugby together and then just stepping up to the wallabies and this talent drain continues to hurt us in fact right now at the start of 2021 we have our wallaby captain michael hooper not playing with the waratahs but instead playing in japan for six months before and we hope returning home to play in the mid-year internationals Matt Phillips, who had a very promising year for the Wallabies last year, has done the same, leaving the Melbourne Rebels without a crucial second rower for the upcoming Super Rugby AU season. And this seems to be a reality every year. Wallabies leaving in their prime, or just after they've made their debut. Probably the most alarming occasion was the Wallaby vice-captain Samu Karevi, who left for Japan after the 2019 Rugby World Cup, despite the fact that the rule at the time would mean he could not qualify for Wallaby selection. That rule, known informally as the Gitto rule, allows for players who have played 60 caps for Australia or have provided seven years of service to be available for selection anywhere in the world. Players like Karevi don't qualify under that arrangement. Now, I've done some numbers on Wallabies leaving Australian shores over the last two decades, and John Eels is exactly right when he says players are leaving to go overseas at a much earlier age than when he was playing in the early 2000s. In the first decade of this millennium, 2000 to 2009, the average age of a Wallaby leaving overseas to play was around 29 years of age. In the last decade, 2010 to 2019, that average age has dropped to around 23 years. So six years, we are now on average losing Wallabies to the overseas player drain, six years earlier than the first decade of this millennium. A case in point, Isaac Rodder, the 25 test-capped Wallaby who left Australia last year after the rugby season was stalled due to coronavirus and is now playing in France. He was 23 at the time. 
But there is a flip side to the opportunity of players going overseas, just like for Ben Alexander at the beginning of his senior playing career. Uh, my last season, the Brumbies Academy, uh, I'd made the Australian under-21s, and that was the year sort of the penny dropped that um, I might be able to play professionally. So a lot of the guys from our 2005 Australian under-21 side had all, all signed um, you know, professional contracts. Yeah, we just lost to South Africa in the World Cup in the World Cup final in, in uh, where was it, Argentina. Um, and, it, and I'd had a really good year, like I'd trained really hard in the off-season, lost weight, got fit. And that was when the penny dropped that if you, know, you train hard, who knows what could happen. And um, I'd got a contract with the Brumbies, a training contract, and did one week of training with the main squad. But then that weekend I snapped my leg in half, playing for the Canberra Vikings, and that put me out for, a, for yeah, it was 10 or 12 months. So, um, and I sort of missed the 2006 season. So agent said, oh, well, instead of just keep training, you could, there's an opportunity to go play in the, the championship over in England. And as a young guy, I was 21, was keen to, um, I'd just finished my rehab and I was keen to start playing some games rather than just keep training and get ready for the next season. Um, yeah, went to England and had an absolute great time. Uh, I think that was like the, so played for Bedford Blues in the championship there and a uh, great, great club with a you know, hundred year tr tr history. And I guess that's where I sort of realized that there's so many different ways to play the game because it was so different to the rugby I'd always played in Australia and what I'd seen the Wallabies. See, if we played Cornish Pirates and like, they didn't, the ball never went past the 5'8". It was just scrum, more kick, scrum, more kick. Like, so it was just yeah, huge, um, huge learning curve for a young Aussie prop uh, to go play over there and just yeah, just to be exposed that there's more than one way to play the game. That was sort of the, the biggest thing I learnt um, yeah, from my time over there as, as a young guy. So I guess that's probably a big part of why I never went back was I sort of did, did my time overseas. I was young, single um, and had an absolute great time. And when I came back, I'd sort of, you know, never really had the urge to go back. Uh, not because I didn't want to or... Um, or it was just, yeah, I was really enjoying playing here and um, sort of felt, yeah, I'd sort of been there and done that. Adam Fryer is one of the few players who never left Australia at all. Yeah, I, I've got memories of writing goals down on a pad. Uh, I remember what they were. It was 40 tests for Australia. I don't know where I've got that number from. 100 Super Rugby games and 300 games for Ramley. I don't know I didn't get there on all of them, but why, how I see rugby back then to what it is now everything's different the whole world's different rugby's different league like i don't think you could pin it down and saying what i envisage rugby to be now as being different to what it is i do remember um everything in my life from sort of the period of, sort of 17 to when i was 21 was about playing for australia it was all about that and um, now making the wallabies is somewhat different because of the professionalism and because the game has evolved I'm not saying it's better or worse, it's evolved. Now, for me to you know, be sitting there at St. Leonard's with Matt Guido in 2002 making my debut, does that make it more special then than it is now? Because there are more caps, there are more um, uh, players and tournaments and matches. It's just, I don't think so. I, I think the, the nostalgia wears off around you being aspirational and getting there. And, and because we're all high-performance athletes, what happens is... Once you hit, I want to play for Australia, you automatically go, well, I want to play 20 tests, 40 tests. You're always striving for more. 
Well, I think now, you know, once some players will make the Wallabies, it presents different opportunities and it goes to different parts. You can go to Europe and go do different things. So I wouldn't say it's better or worse. Um, it, it, it's just different. And I think I can't put saying rugby being different. I just think the whole world is very different. Now, of course, there is another pressure that is put on our ability to get the best footballers in the land. In fact, two pressures, Australian rules football and rugby league. Two professional sports that have dwarfed rugby union for over 100 years. In my email rant to Rugby Australia that I mentioned in an earlier episode and is currently posted on the Facebook page, I lamented the fact that the Wallabies could never choose players like Billy Slater and Jonathan Thurston and how strong we could be if we'd had the opportunity to select from these codes. It's always an interesting hypothetical to play. Take the best players from Aussie Rules, Rugby League and Union and put together the best starting 15 for the Wallabies. Just how many rugby union players would actually be in it? Now when professionalism came in, Australian rugby finally had money to keep the talent it had developed and not have it poached to rugby league like we had in the 80s when the Michael O'Connors and Brett Papworths played for the Wallabies and then went and played rugby league. We heard about this in a previous episode with John O'Neill, the former CEO of Australian Rugby Union, talking to us about how close we were to losing players after our successful 1991 World Cup win. It's often forgotten that um, rugby league was, had always been in the ascendancy in terms of direct competitiveness. I mean, there's AFL, of course, and, and football, but the 13-man game, rugby league versus the 15-man game, that was where the real battle for hearts and minds was at. And rugby union had been, you know, I won't go back to the, the history of the split in 1908, etc., but it it's quite relevant as well. But in 91, um, the Wallabies won the World Cup and you know, it took rugby into a, into a different uh, league, well, excuse the pun, and, uh, and rugby, rugby league became a bit, a bit concerned about you know, rugby union. Ken Arthurson and John Quayle were, were running rugby league at that time and they were on a roll, they were doing exceptionally well. And they declared war on, on rugby. It sounds a bit dramatic, but what it was all about is poaching players. They'd been poaching players forever, but they were after this, you know, in a generational sense, a really special bunch of players. Uh, Tim Horan, Jason Little, you know, Michael Lani, you name it. And Rugby Union had to do something about it. And what it did, of course, was capitalise on the professionalisation of the code which is what enabled us to keep rugby league at bay and prevent Wallabies from being lured across to the 13-man game. However, that pressure has never gone away at the junior level, and even in today's world, there is still considerable pressure from rugby league aimed at scouring the best of junior rugby union talent. Just as Wallaby historian Matthew Alvarez pointed out in episode 8. You've only got to go to a GPS or a representative match in Sydney and walk around the ground and see all the league scouts. They're the ones wearing the peak, the baseball cap, the dark glasses, and they've got the um, they've got their file there with them, um, clipboard, uh, and you know exactly what's going on. This is the view of Rod McQueen, a most successful Wallaby coach and the man who steered us through the golden era. It's not an easy one losing the talent that we do, and it's always going to happen. You know, someone's always going to want to go to league or even AFL, etc. Um, or overseas, that's going to happen. I think from from our point of view, I do think we've got enough good players to 
to go well. Um, not to say that we couldn't, you know, we couldn't use a few more, but particularly in the schools area, I think we, can, we could do more as you know, far as nurturing them and, and getting onto them early. A lot of the talent scouts, I guess, for a league and AFL are into the schools and understanding what's going on. I don't think we do that enough of that. It'd be nice for us to pick up on some of those younger players earlier. But generally, I think you know we do have the talent, and we can still be you know we can still be the world's best, and I've you know, got no doubt about that. Now that's the downside of rugby league; it takes our talent. But what about rugby league giving us talent? In the early two thousands, when rugby union was at its zenith in Australia, and the code had money, decided to fight back at rugby league. At the time, three of the biggest names in league, in Wendell Saylor, Lottie Takiri, and Matt Rogers, were poached from the thirteen man game. All three players would feature in the 2003 Rugby World Cup final, in which we were beaten by England at the death. Since then, the Rugby League players have come and gone. Israel Flowers probably been the most notable. But the question should be asked, was it all worth it? This is Peter Fitzsimons. Look, I think the, the idea of putting a million dollars on the table and getting the likes of Wendell Saylor, Matt Rogers, Israel Folau... We can't afford that anymore, and we need to catch and kill our own. We need to raise our own. And I don't think Australian rugby can buy their way to popularity, and that's been tried and failed. You know, we, we need to produce our own. Australia, there's actually, the, the glimmer of hope right now is there's all kinds of talk of the fantastic 19 and 20-year-olds that are coming through, that the programs are actually working, and we spotted talent early, and developed that talent and maybe we're about to reap the benefits of it we'll see and i really hope that is true the last under 1920s rugby world cup was held back in 2019 and the junior wallabies who had beaten the junior all blacks that year made the final narrowly losing to france almost all that junior wallaby team are currently playing super rugby and at least two of them harry wilson and noel Alessio, made their wallaby debuts last year but one of the players from that team fullback Isaac Lucas did leave Australia in 2020 after a promising start with the Queensland Reds. So what can we do, if anything, about keeping these young players playing in Australia? Here's Michael Liner. In a perfect world, I would say there's got to be some sort of negotiation where um, an Australian player comes and plays overseas, particularly in Japan where the time zones are not too bad and it's not too far away. Um, that then he's also available to play for Australia, to be selected to play for Australia. It's not going to, it doesn't mean he's going to get picked, but what that has the... It, it means that the player's costs are being paid by somebody else, yet he's still available for Australia, which I think's got to be a win-win situation. Um, he's got to perform. He's got to be fit. All those sort of things go without question, but... Um, and there's also, you know, you've got to think, well, there may be a little bit of resentment in the team. He's off, you know, he's been able to go to Japan and he's earning three times as much as I am, but we're in the same team together. Well, that's just something you've got to get over, I guess. Um, but I think those opportunities need to be looked at because from a Rugby Australia point of view, um, somebody else is paying for him and he can come back and play for us. That seems like a good opportunity for me. But it's a negotiation. It's not a, there's no like a 50 cap rule or something like that. And this, there might be some players where they go, well, no, we, you know, the coaching staff don't, off you go, you're gone. You know, you can go. Yes, you're still available, but don't expect to be picked. Um, but if you're playing really well and you're fit and all that, and we, 
well, you can be picked. It's not a, it's not a no, you know what I mean? I guess one observation I have for that as a, as a supporter is it's difficult, it has been difficult to get attached to players yeah. when they're changing teams, they're going overseas, coming back. And I guess, you know, quite honestly, for many people in who, who, who love the Wallabies, they don't necessarily follow Super Rugby. Mm. So, you know, I think you've had situations where they'll see a player playing for the Wallabies and it's the first time they've ever come Same. across him. Yeah. And, and again, so, so the pressure that we have to try and retain talent, not necessarily just to keep the team mm. a little more cohesive, um, but also so that fans can actually recognise yeah. who's playing in which teams yeah. and become attached to these players. No, absolutely right. There's no doubt about that. And um, that's an issue that, you know, it's, 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 I don't have the, all the answers to this because, but when, you know, I keep saying that, you know, if, if, if an engineer goes overseas for two or three times the wages, you'd say good luck to them, you know, well done. A rugby player, you're expecting him to say no to that? That's tough on a young kid to do that and very short period of time for them to earn some money. Um, on the other side, we need to try and retain those players for identification, sponsors, all sorts of things, you know, fan involvement. Um, so there, it, it's a complicated situation. At the end of the day, you know, being a professional sport, you know, money, money speaks. Um, but if you can open up a dialogue with the players to try and keep them so each case is sort of individually dealt with rather than a ghetto law you know well you're going you go Sean McMahon up in um and I just use him as one example I mean he couldn't say no to that sort of stuff and we've lost him you know he's in Japan I see he's on the Gold Coast this week I mean he's young enough to be able to say Sean you know we'd like you to come back but you know we understand you have a contract there that's great um but you know we'll look at all your games you know there's, there's a high performance staff at at Rugby Australia that can do that. Um, you send us all your data around fitnesses, et cetera, et cetera, and we'll consider you. That's all he can ask. Um, then you've got the problem of, as I sort of alluded to, about players being in Australia, toiling away for you know, less wages, et cetera. But hey, you know, that's their lot. It's not every, not every solicitor makes partner. Not every engineer gets offered an overseas job for three times his wage. You know, it's, 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 that's what happens. And it's a fair point. As much as we groan and grumble for the good old days when players played for their country and for passion, rugby is a profession. And with our economy and place in the world, it's very hard to stand in the way of players who want to make hay while the sun shines, earning pounds, euros, yen, and now US dollars in the rapidly expanding Major League Rugby in the USA. Even if we tried to get private investment introduce schemes and post-career opportunities. At a stretch, we could probably work at getting that average age of a wallaby leaving in this decade back up close to 29, still giving them a few seasons to enjoy overseas while getting the most out of them in Australia. More importantly, keeping that talent close to develop our player pool. Because otherwise, what else can we do to prevent this talent and brain drain? I'd be getting paid more in my role if I knew that answer. Um, Adam Fryer, after his career, Adam actually worked at Rugby Australia, rising up to the ranks of general manager of marketing and digital. I think there is. There's, there's anecdotal things that you could show in market now that have proven to be successful. 
the Crusaders hold a lot of their players because they're winning. And you can see that there is, there's magic in that system. You look at their coach and there is definite, there's something unique about being that environment. Now, Michael Checker, who I'm a big fan of, he's, you know, I'll talk about Eddie Jones as being the best coach I've ever had, but from a person and a leader and a mentor and a, and a person I've learned off the most by sitting back and not being right in his pocket is probably Michael Checker. He was incredible at the Waratahs and you see that in the, the camaraderie he built, not many people were leaving that organisation. So it comes down to culture, dynamic and performance. And, you know, I think they're things that in explaining to a player, you will hang around for less money if you're happy. I, I've got no doubt about it. There are some players, and I don't hold a grudge to it, that go overseas because the money is just next level good. And that's fine. You're going to get that. But I think having a winning culture and environment of people thriving is, is key. And when Waratahs had success under Michael Checker, he had that. Ewan McKenzie had success at the Waratahs because he was able to maintain and hold that squad. And I was part of that. We had an absolute ball. And we never, I never won anything at a super rugby level. I played in three finals. Um, but I played in front of 40,000 people week in, week out. There's some magic to that. And you don't go overseas to places because you want to stay there. The other thing that's really interesting is that you know, I think there will be, ultimately, there needs to be a mechanism where players are incentivized to stay within their clubs and tribes and, and super franchises. But it's hard to sort of build a narrative to say I'm here for the right reasons when you attach a dollar sign to it. But look, I, I think losing players during their career is one thing and it's going to happen. What we can be control of is for that player to always finish their career where they started. So the magic of me returning to Ramwick, it's given me, and I've said this, I said this when we got knocked out of the, the finals last week, is that I've enjoyed the last four years of my life more so than probably the prime of eight years in the Wallaby environment because there's a certain element of you giving back. Now, if every player, if there was a mechanism for every player who played at a club that was then promoted to a professional contract, if there was a mechanism for that player to come back and play a season, run the tuck shop, assistant manager, assistant coach or something that, and it could be a piece of a check that was cut from a broadcast deal or player generated revenue or something to do with the players association, you get that player back into the ecosystem. You know, that's, a, name me a sport that would do that and that person thriving. And not only does it have mental health benefits for the player if they need it um you you know you actually feeling good about yourself physically um you being the top of the pops like there's so many benefits from it but there are some players that you just go cut the cord see you later you're not getting paid anymore go find a job and this whole thing around transition i think is all a bit loose but there is a mechanism of driving it now can you imagine those kids in canberra that are lining up next to or in front of matt Guido? That guy's a legend, not because of what he did for the Wallabies and what he did in Europe. He's regarded, in my view, as a David Beckham of our sport. He's playing Canberra Club Rugby, who lost the final, who hung around and did a Mad Monday. Like, that, that, that's just, you can't put a price on that. So, again, we're not going to ever stop players going overseas and sampling the beauty of rugby, which is an international sport that's celebrated across the world where you can play in California to, you know, anywhere, Colombo, um, 
Cape Town, all these beautiful places, but we are in control of where they finish. And I think that's something that we need to work towards. And I talk about ecosystems, just round it off and bring it back in. And you're gonna get not only that player attached to his club and thanking them, but you're gonna get these young kids that are gonna be on the rugby drug for life. And I wanna end on there, because I think it's a great point that Adam makes. There's a lot that we can't control. Other codes, international competitions, global economies, but there is still plenty that we can control within Australia, within our own systems. And it's definitely something we have to spend more time on understanding and acting upon. The answer is, do we have enough talent? Well, yes, we do. But that's not really the problem. The problem is, how can we keep our talent and have our talent return? If you want to discuss this topic more, please leave a comment on Facebook or Twitter. I'd be happy to exchange views and try and answer questions the best I know. I'm going to have some more interviews in the coming weeks. I hope you're enjoying this podcast series, and I keep saying it, but very soon we're going to have some updates on the actual documentary film, which I'm looking forward to sharing with you all. Until then, I hope you enjoy the Super Rugby AU Round 1, which starts this week. Better get your stand subscription if you haven't already. Yes, Dad, I'm talking to you. This is the Gold Digger podcast series. A spin-off from the new feature documentary film Gold Digger, The Search for Australian Rugby, which will be coming out very soon. Brought to you by me, director and host, Matt Durren. And sponsored by whoever wants to reach out and pay me to have their name up in lights. Music is by Makeup and Vanity Set, sourced from musicbed.com. Check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash golddiggerrugby. Follow us on Instagram for pretty pictures and Twitter for banal chatter. Till next time keep on digging.